still appointed today. They keep trying to tell me Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined here today by our host and star of this show, the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. This is episode 465 on the network, and this is Cott's Corner. Before we bring Jim on, just want to thank a couple groups of people. First, our marketing partner, Millions. If you go on Millions, the link will be in the show notes and is all over social media. You can go advertising or speaking engagements. You can click on the Book Me option. You can advertise on this show. And you can try to book one of our hosts, specifically the Hall of Famer, for a speaking engagement. Also, click on the shop option. You can look at our new merchandise, hoodies, T-shirts for men and women, and good baseball caps there. Or you can engage our hosts in an experience, which means you can ask them a baseball question, and they'll answer it for you in 30 to 90 seconds there. So don't miss out on the opportunities with millions. Jaw Bats, newest certified baseball bat for Major League Baseball. Tanner's using his M110 model. Jeff Fry using his C271. Both love it. Uh, Jaw Bats, if you go to their link again in our show notes and in social media, use RVG at checkout. Gets you a discount on us. Also, the Kinetic Arm. Uh, Jim was just telling me before the show, I'll let him speak on it to himself. Uh, Kinetic Arm, one of the, the newest, most innovative patented devices to try to help us fix the rash of arm injuries that's going on globally right now with pitchers and, and throwers in general. Prevents arm lags, a multi-joint dynamic stabilizer, aids in de- deceleration, and, and really takes the, the stress off the external rotation. Uh, we, we love what Jason Collar is doing with Kinetic Arm. RVG DAG at checkout gets you a discount on us for Kinetic Arm. Also, one-on-one, College Pathways helped young kids go to college on either baseball or basketball scholarships to the tune of $540 million over the last four years. So take a look at one-on-one. And also our newest product will be with us next week, but I wanted to give him a little shout out this week. Monet, it's a hair product. They're telling us that they can cure our hat head as baseball players. So um, I'm going to try it out first before I unleash it on you guys to make sure it works. I don't want to uh, want to make sure it's, it's good, but they said it's a great product. So we're, we're looking at that to start next week. So with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you very much, Dave. And I, uh, I enjoyed listening to uh, Kevin, Kevin Kernan and, uh, uh, discuss uh, Billy Milo's experience as a scout and also the kinetic arm, which we can get into. But I thought a clever story, and Billy probably would know this because he scouted for the Twins for so long. But one thing the Twins, uh, you know, they were very frugal. Calvin Griffith was a tight-fisted owner, but he invested a lot of money in scouting. And as Kevin said, when Terry Ryan was there, that still existed. That has gone out the window. But one of the uh, coaches that I had in my early days and then went on to become a scout uh, was the late, great Ellis Clary. And he was a baseball legend, one of the great characters out of Valdosta, Georgia. And he had a heart issue one night scouting. They had to put him in the emergency wagon and take him to the hospital. And he said to the driver, be sure to get the mileage. I want to put this on my expense account. (laughs) And that was so typical of Ellis, and I'm sure typical of the uh, of the scouts, because what they didn't make in salary, they had to certainly try to put down every cent they spent for expenses. Yeah, the life the lifeblood of our sport, and it's sad to see a lot of them being pushed aside and marginalized. But that's that's kind of why we're doing what we're doing here with the podcast, among a, n- a number of things. But 
Yeah, Billy's going to be on the show. Maybe we can get him on your show um, in the near future. And you're you're about to head down to spring training soon, but you made mention of the kinetic arm. You received that uh, from Jason. Um, how's how's it working? You try it out already? I put it on this morning. You know, at my size, I had to stretch it a little bit. Uh, what I'm eager to do is take it to spring training. I don't know if the twins have purchased any of them, but I'm I'm good friends with uh, Phil Roof, who's been a catcher years and years ago, and and uh, is always in spring training with the Twins, uh, working with the catchers. And then Tucker Frawley, who was the head of their infield instructors and a big fan of Ted Kubiak and the uh, drills that Ted has. But I want to see Tucker put it on and play catch with it. I just went through the motion, and I can understand exactly. I, I think it fits in with a lot of the stuff that Jim Colonel is talking about. I do, too. And this, to me, sort of uh, – sort of forces you into in doing the right thing by eliminating that arm lag back behind your body and getting the ball up and above your head and into the throwing position. Uh, I accomplished that by making believe that I was an infielder, feel that a ground ball came up like I was going to throw it to first base. And the kinetic arm, uh, I think, kind of puts you in that those proper positions. Yeah, I liked it too because I was my concern, and I, I I shared with Jason, but I don't have any now using it. Was that it was going to be everybody cookie cutter the same the same way? But Tanner's a catcher, pitchers are using it, and the one thing Tanner gave me feedback on was as he's he's beginning his throwing, he's got a lot of juice. He can really rev it up, and it helps him with deceleration. Um, but as he's going, you know, he's going further into his routine. Um, he said it helps out with the arm lag because as he gets tired, that arm starts to lag behind and it really prevents it from happening. So I give Jason a lot of credit for doing that. He had his own personal experiences, as you heard on the show. Right. Earning, and it uh, drives a lot of us, right? We we, uh, we all have that context. I think that's what's missing in teaching and coaching nowadays. People uh, try to operate uh, too deep into their context, but I give Jason credit. Took his problem and he's applying it to other people, allowing them to use it their own way. So. I'm uh I'm curious to see how the the twins like it when you bring it down there. Yeah, I hope I see some of them there in uh, Twins camp. Uh, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. But like I said, I just tried it on, kind of went through my throwing motion, and I can understand, uh, you know, relating back to some of my instructors that I had that really stressed uh, getting the ball out of the glove and up into the throwing position, similar to what a catcher would do. Yeah. And that works for pitching too. If you if you broke down the motions of outfielders, catchers, infielders, pitchers, pitchers probably have the worst mechanical, kinetic, uh, kinetically sound, if that would be a proper term, motions of any of the four. Really? Because well, because they're trying today more than ever before. They're trying to just throw it as hard as they can. Yeah, that's a good. Point. And in order to throw it as hard as you can, see now the outfielder, if pitchers were cricket bowlers, like they are in Australia, New Zealand, you get a hop step and a running start. Well, that's what the infielders and the outfielders get, even the catchers get. But the pitchers, you're starting with your foot against that rubber. Uh, you don't have that extra push going forward. So they have to create it by trying to generate so much extra power with their upper body. Thus, their mechanics are not good, and the operating tables are uh, overflowing. 
I know, right? What, I mean, again, this is a novel thought and, it, and you, you brought it up to me before. What if by chance they started challenging pitchers to just throw their fat, let's say their fastball, only at the speed that they can throw strikes? Would that be too common sense? Well, I, I mentioned one of the things, you know, I, I, I sent this to Tucker, also of the Twins, and he got a kick out of it. I said, these are the signs, first of all, that I would uh, post in the clubhouses if I were in charge in big letters. And one would be, instinct is your best tool. Curiosity is second. I have a couple of other points, but I'll scroll right down to the one to the pitchers. So the, the challenge to the pitchers in spring training would be find a speed that you can throw your fastball consistently in the strike zone. Could even bring back the old pitching strings that the Dodgers used for years where you made a, a strike zone out of clothesline rope yeah. with a couple of broomsticks and then the catcher sat behind there. And so, you know, the theory being, I like what Mike Rizzo did in Nationals camp. Uh, he had all these X's outside the strike zone, and he said, your 102-mile-an-hour fastball for ball four uh, is worth nothing. So to me, that would be your 100-mile-an-hour fastball out of the strike zone is worth nothing, but an 88-mile-an-hour strike with some movement and location could be a, a productive pitch. And oh, that's okay. the challenge to, to get away from just throwing – as hard as you can. And I think I mentioned to Vinny Perez that one of his clients, Vinny, the uh, outstanding physical therapist, uh, one of his uh, kids that's in there rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, which is a long list, to say, well, I'd rather throw a 102 mile an hour ball than a 96 mile an hour strike. So that's how infatuated and stupid kids can be with being enamored with how hard they can throw and not throwing strikes. Well, there, and this kind of goes back to the, the, the point you made before the story about instincts and curiosity. There, there was a reality at one time where what you're saying is true. And somehow through these charlatans or gurus or propeller head, whatever we want to call them, the kids nowadays, and even the, it's, it's hitting the coaches, have a, a new reality and we need to get them out of it. When you talk instincts and curiosity, go, go deeper into that because I think that's I think that's being lost right now. I don't think the kids have instincts. Well, I, I think what you mentioned a couple shows ago that Nomar Garcia Parr mentioned, uh, which, which stuck with me, is that uh, I want to be data-informed, but I, wanna, I don't want to be data-driven. Yeah. So as a pitcher, you would like all the data maybe to help you with your motion, uh, the way you could improve it kinetically. Uh, but as far as uh, data-driven – when you get out into a game, uh, you and the catcher have been in the game for several innings, uh, your instincts have to take over as to uh, how you're throwing that day, what your stuff is like. Uh, you faced the same hitter before. He never pulled you. Now he's pulling everything. Okay, well, then I got to go to plan B. So some of those th kinds of things would be your instincts, and then your curiosity would be, I don't know if the players today, because they have so much AI, I guess I could call it artificial information, and that they don't go to other players. Uh, you know, I've, I've told the story many times about how I learned my fastball grip by asking Whitey Ford how he gripped his. And uh, that, that's your, your curiosity aspect is 
is you look around and you're in camp and you see this guy's got a great changeup. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions and be curious about how you're doing this. Uh, that's where I think you learn from those that are doing it and doing it well, instead of just trying to find out, uh, you know, the mechanics of it. Yeah. We, we had uh, Pat Hankin on, former Cy Young Award winner with the Blue Jays. He's now a special assistant on our first show today with, with Jim Rooney, Toe the Rubber. And he spoke of that being the prevalent way. And he said it was before cell phones, before the Internet, that his biggest turnaround as a pitcher when he was a young kid was Jimmy Key coming down doing a rehab assignment. And he couldn't understand how this guy who th- threw probably eight to ten miles an hour slower than Pat did, how he was more confident, more effective, and more deliberate with how he, uh, how he went through games. And he learned a ton from him just watching. And he looked at his body type and he said, I should be the one that's fearless. And, and why am I so scared out there? And Jimmy Key taught him exactly the point that you're, you're, you brought up about, you know, throwing strikes at a speed, you know, gauging your speed based on how you could throw strikes. But he also had a point, you had this as a phrase in the show notes about just doing ordinary things in an extraordinary way. He said he was just simple. He yeah. worked, he threw strikes, he protected his arm. Um, what, what, what were you meaning more by, what were you meaning by that? ordinary things, extraordinary way. Well, I, I think that that pertained a lot to infielders in that, uh, you know, there are infielders that can make that flashy play, yeah, sensational play. Uh, a lot of the Latin American shortstops who grew up on rocky fields, they had to learn to field the ball off to the side like the great Tony Fernandez and many others. Uh, and then I remember when Derek Jeter first came on the scene, he didn't impress people with a lot of flash and dash like the Mets had Ray Ordonez. Uh, and, and what Derek did is that he just did the ordinary things. And it's the same way I think maybe with pitching would be throwing strikes. You, you don't have to, let's see, maybe, maybe I could relate it as an analogy this way, similar to Jimmy Key and Pat Hinkin. And as an aside, I, I have such great respect for Pat. I was doing a lot of games on TV when he was in his, uh, heyday, you know, a young, strong Michigan boy that never abused his arm, had a good fastball and and had a lot of confidence in it. And he learned from a master in Jimmy Key. But Stan Bonson used to say to me, and I'll clean it up. He said, you know, how do you get people up with that stuff you're throwing out there? How do you get them out? And I said, well, Stanley, see, you throw your number one curveball for strike one, knee high outside corner. And then the deeper you get into the count, uh, the worse your pitches get. I said, I'd rather gamble early in the count and trust my stuff and make the hitter put the ball in play. So the, the doing the ordinary things for me would be just keep throwing strikes. Just keep throwing strikes. Learn how to control the ball within the strike zone. Don't worry about that outstanding curveball where you get a strikeout once in a while, just make the other stuff your main focus. You, you were getting into the infielders a little bit too. And I, I talk quite a bit with Ted, like much like Tucker, I'm a big fan of Ted Kubiak. And we always talk about using two hands. Yeah. And you don't see that often anymore uh, with guys using two hands. We Neither one of us like that gator thing that they do with a hand on top. We like our hands open like a book. Um, and yeah, you, you know, I, uh, I may have mentioned this before, but after Derek was in the league for maybe two years, 
And then I said to Don Zimmer, who was Joe Torre's bench coach, and Zim had seen it all, I said, Zim, that play to the arm side of Derek Jeter, that play that's you're moving toward third base and you, you flip your palm over, palm up, over your throwing arm side, but looks very awkward. And then you pick the ball out of the glove and from an underhand position, you throw that to first. I said, man, he, you know, whereas most guys would either try to barehand it or they backhand it and then make the transfer. And I said, uh, man, he, he makes that play look easy. And Zim in his own way said, pal, the best I've ever seen at it. Really? You know, and that was Derek doing one of the ordinary things in an, in an extraordinary fashion that he just, he just worked on it and made that his, part of his routine that, uh, and I don't know if you could relate to your picture that cause we don't have any audio, Yeah. but uh, he was so good at that play and very few even try it that way. They always want to backhand it. Yeah. That's the prevalent way now. And you make a great point with the Latin players. They, they did that as a part of survival on the fields a lot grew up in and our American kids do it as a way of, uh, I guess to fit in or they think it's a, the, the way to do it. But I always, my dad used to tell me, Hey, God made you with two hands, use them. Play the, play the game with two hands. Didn't matter what sport it was, basketball, baseball, yeah. play the game with two hands. Um, how, how did that, and, and I want one more question on Jeter and I want you to talk about, cause you, you were a great fielding pitcher and you, you've got thoughts on that. But Jeter got banged on a lot for not being a great fielder, but you got a chance to see him up close. Your opinion on it is just the opposite. Yeah, I, I think, granted, in his latter years, the same thing with Cal Ripken, they, they had limited range. You know, they had limited range. They had to learn to um, be very astute at playing the hitters, you know, kind of cheating one way or the other to make up for their lack of range. But – uh, I don't think Derek ever did anything as flashy as Ray Ordonez or uh, Tony Fernandez, who was the shortstop for Derek stepped in. But he just did them in such a casual way that I think that's why they didn't feel he was uh, was a good shortstop. But I, uh, you know, was an outstanding fielder. But boy, when you uh, when you see him on an everyday basis, like I did for almost 12 years, uh, th then you appreciate how he took some of those difficult plays going to his left behind second base and make them look almost routine. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I don't think he stood out as a, you know, he didn't have a lot of flash and dash about it. I, I got that advice when I started scouting at the professional level with, with the basketball side where I was lucky enough, I, I sought out the, the, old, the, the oldest scouts in the room I'd go sit by because they, they'd been around longer. They've, they've seen it and done it. I wanted to get advice from them. And one of the first pieces of advice I've got is that now audience knows they've seen pictures. I'm 5'10", 170 pounds. That was my fighting weight back then too. So I, uh, I didn't get any bigger. I'm still the same size. But they cautioned me. They said, don't penalize a guy out here on the court because you don't think he's running hard. Just because you had to run harder to go from point A to point B or do it hard doesn't mean he's doing it any less effectively than you did. It just means he's a better athlete and he's got better instincts. So I took that advice, and that's kind of what you're saying about Jeter. It sounds like he, he either had good anticipation, uh, you know, exceptional hands, great instincts, as, as you mentioned. Probably was asking questions, I would imagine. He had all those guys around him like, like Zim. But uh, I got some great advice there because my first time watching 
I'd be like, ah, he doesn't run very hard. He doesn't. But again, they were better athletes. They knew when to turn it on, when to turn it off in that regard. Yeah, I played with a, one of my great teammates, George Hendrick, right fielder for the Cardinals in 82. And for a couple of years there, I think George was the best all-around right fielder in the National League. And George always had the reputation for being, you know, almost on the lazy side because he had those very long strides and he didn't look like he was running hard to first base. But if there was a ground ball where his sixth sense said, I got a chance to beat that out, you could see him just kind of put that extra gear in. And the same way in the outfield, you know, he, uh, he would get a good enough jump on the ball. See, Bernie Williams, who ended up being a great center fielder, but Bernie was a reaction. Bernie would, the ball would be hit, and it might take him a, a beat or two, and then all of a sudden he takes off, and now on a full run, he's reaching out and stretching and almost diving and making the catch, and it looks like a sensational catch. Uh, George, on the other hand, got such a good jump that he was already in that Edwin Moses-type stride, and he would just you know, get the ball and make it look like an ordinary play. Yeah, that's and, and uh, to the uh, to the fans. Sometimes it looked like he was almost playing uh, too casually. Yeah, I, I developed a, a better appreciation for that. Um, basically, viewing what, what you mentioned just with a different ball. Now, if you you're, you're going to be heading down to spring training, and everybody knows your your prowess as a as a fielder, if they grabbed you off the you know, I know you spend a lot of time talking to the fans and whatnot. If they grabbed you on and said, we want you to work these pitchers out. We want you to, to, to get them fielding the ball the right way. Um, what, what kind of things would you be doing? What First of all, they wouldn't ask me. I, uh, I, I, they don't spend enough time on it. Uh, I was asked, uh, boy, time flies, several years ago when Pete McCannon was managing the Phillies, Bob McClure was their pitching coach, and – it was that World Series that year where the pitchers might have been the Tigers. They made an inordinate number of errors. And I, I was talking to Pete about how uh, the fielding for a pitcher has gone downhill. So he said, well, come to camp with us. So I did as a guest instructor. I mean, the, the AAA coach was in charge of uh, taking the pitchers over to the diamond. They, they asked me very few questions. It wasn't my position to jump in and take over and say, hey, this is the way we're going to do it. And they spent no time at all. Uh, if I were in charge, uh, we would spend a lot of time on the first baseman, second baseman, the pitcher covering first base time after time after time to learn how to run that proper route. You know, when you're getting off the mound, you, you, you learn every ball that is hit to the right side of you as a pitcher you have to get those first three steps toward first base in a hurry or you'll never catch up. And then as you get closer to the bag, your feet, your steps shorten up so you can get a little better look at the ball, catch the ball, touch the bag. They don't put enough time into that. Uh, they don't put enough time into fielding bunts and learning how to throw to second base and third base. Uh, comebackers. Del Unser, who was a major league outfielder, had a, I don't know if he was a salesman for the com company, but there was a ball called the Incredible. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Soft, soft. Clock. So what I did in spring training when I coached the Reds pitcher, we'd go out to the outfield and I, with a fungal bat, I would hit that Incredible back at them. I had them go through their motion like they were throwing a home plate and then 
learn to anticipate and be in position for comebackers. So we spent a lot of time on that. Uh, and, and I just think today there is, it's just kind of, oh, by the way, we'll do a few pitching drills. And that's where spring training in general, I think, has become so much more relaxed. And we talked a little bit about it on the last podcast in that teams are now taking their young, talented stars that maybe haven't quite become polished big leaguers, but they're playing at the big league level and then kind of teaching them on the job. And that's why we see a lot of the fun, particularly pitchers fielding. Uh, we just see a lot of the fundamental things that, that we were taught to do over a period of time uh, that are lacking. And uh, so if I had any, if I had any sway in uh, what pitchers should do in spring training, that's what I would do. But they got so many other things they're interested in. I think that's way down the list of priorities. Yeah. What uh, I love the three strides. That's, that's, that's huge. Yeah, Eddie Lopat taught me that. He said, as soon as the ball is hit to the right side, your first three strides should be kind of long strides. I mean, you don't want to do it, uh, out of, uh, you know, you don't want to do it too hard so you end up pulling a hamstring, but they should be rather long strides toward that first baseline, maybe about 10 feet up from the line, you know, where, where it would be about the 80-foot mark for a runner running from home to first. And then as you get closer to that line, you shorten up, you get straight parallel to the first baseline, and, and you can be in position to feel the ball and touch the bag. I always told... Uh, Don Mincher, our first baseman, we were the twins because I, I faced mostly right-hand hitters and I like to throw the ball down and away. So if things were going well, I would get a lot of ground balls to the right side. And I said, Minch, any of those ground balls that are hit between first and second, the instinct for a first baseman is go to the bag. I said, go to the ball. I will be there. If I'm not there, throw it because it's my fault. So I always took a lot of pride in any ball hit to that right side between first and second. He knew I was going to be at the bag. And if you don't get off the mound those first three strides, probably one of the things I, I'm most proud of as a fielder is in game two of the 1965 World Series. I, I think it might still be a record, but I had, uh, I had five putouts. Oh, wow. And I retired Willie Davis who could fly three times first base to pitcher. And if I didn't get off the mound immediately, there's no way I would have ever beaten him to first base. So those, those are things that we, we did in spring training time after time and just took a lot of pride in doing that, which would, would save you out. So now the analytics guys will say all the information they get is, uh, is helping them win two games. But if they don't teach their pitchers to feel these, to, to feel their position like this, they're probably costing them twice that many. Yeah, that's the that's the lovely nature of that that type of communication because they throw something way out in the future to create a reality that you never get to because there's no way to prove or disprove the two games. So it's a unless people start challenging it, there's no way to do that. I love the the eighty foot too because I think I see when I we see pitchers get off the mound, they're not precise in terms of where they're going. I love the exact. And I like the cue to your first baseman because that allowed your first baseman to play almost as aggressively as your third baseman where hey, everything exactly. side I'm going to get. And they I, don't even I, I used to see when I was doing games, the ball would be hit borderline 
And the first baseman's instinct is, well, I got to get to the bag because he's got a, a pretty long run, too, to get to first base, turn around, get himself into position, catch the ball. And what this did is allow Don Mincher and, and uh, when Harmon was playing first base, do the same thing. It allowed them to play, like you said, like a third baseman, just feel the ball. And it's my responsibility uh, to get over to first base and, and be the first baseman. Yeah. Now, what, what about fielding bunts? You as a lefty, um, you know, I know you said throwing the second or third, but that bunt down the third base side where you've got to get the guy out at first, what, what was your body position? I know it's a audio show, but you do a good job of painting. Well, I think it's, it's really the same thing is that the, you train yourself that the first three strides off that mound are, you know, are, are long strides. And then as a left-hander, you know, you try to get yourself in position where you're half turning toward, that would be turning toward the outfield away from home plate, and then feel the ball and come up with that little hop step. I had a little trouble with my throws early on in my career because I wanted to get rid of it so quickly. And it, it kind of goes back to the pitching thing in the, in the kinetic arm. I had so much arm lag back here, and then I'd try to catch up and, the ball would be moving three, four feet. Fortunately, I had good first baseman and shortstops that dug it out of the dirt. But I, I finally learned to get over there and get the ball up in the throwing position as quickly as possible, and then take that hop step and, and uh, throw it to throw it to first. Same way uh, on a comebacker trying to make a double play to second. You know, it's all about your footwork because you're on the mound, which is you know on a slope. So you have to take that little hop step to get your balance and then get the ball out of the glove and, and in the throwing position as quickly as possible. But, yeah, a lot of that uh, fielding ground balls is anticipation and then with, with the bumps and covering first, getting off the mound in the proper direction as quickly as possible. I see that that, that comebacker should be a – that should be bang, bang, 100%. But it's it's almost a 50-50 play now. I see more balls getting sailed into the outfield. Where Where is that? Where's the miscue nowadays with pitchers? When you see that happening and you you can probably tell before the throws made that this one's, this one's not going to work. Where do you yeah, see that? That's footwork. They're off balance. And again, it, it comes, I don't think they, if they don't anticipate, they don't get off the mound quickly enough. And then all of a sudden they're playing catch up and their feet are moving too fast and they throw off balance. Uh, even even uh, more so than fielding bunts and stuff is the the comebackers, the the motion that pitchers are forced to create to throw as hard as they can puts them in a position that they are just not in position to feel the ground ball back through the mound. They're getting hit in the back. Uh, now they'll say, well, look at Bob Gibson. Well, yeah, you look at Bob Gibson. He fell way off to the first base side. But Gibby was such a great athlete that as, as soon as he finished that delivery, boom, he balanced. He got back over onto his right foot where he was in position to feel anything coming back at him. Yeah, I love the sensational uh, parallel. <laughs> Very few Bob Gibsons nowadays out there. Right. They can do that. And the, the point you make with three strides, it's funny because that's a, that's a huge basketball principle too. If you and we're coming up on March Madness as spring training happens, the team that gets to their first three strides the fastest. Now you're dealing with 120 possessions a game, maybe more, going from offense to defense or defense to offense will invariably win the transition battle. And uh, I always point to a guy like Larry Bird, not the fastest, but if you ever watch his games, 
he was the quickest to those first three strides offensively and defensively, which was part of what made him a great player. But uh, certainly wouldn't win, win any foot races, but his instinct was good in that regard. Um, now, you, you had mentioned a couple of drills. I don't know if we covered them or not, but the TK drill. Yeah. drill. Well, you know, Tom Kelly, TK, was uh, one of the great managers. Uh, two world championships in uh, five years there in Minnesota with a, with a small payroll in a small market. But, boy, he ran spring training uh, so well and uh, stressed so much the the fundamentals. That's why having guys like Greg Gagne, Kirby Puckett, Ken Herbeck, uh, Gary Gaetti, he had them in the minor leagues and trained them that way. So when he got to the big leagues and they were there, they, to, to a man, when I would be covering games for the twins and in the press room, they would always say, boy, the twins, they, they give you nine innings of solid fundamental baseball every night. And TK had a drill in spring training, the rocket drill. So he did put a regular lineup out there, right, center, left field, infield, catcher, pitcher. And he used some of the pitchers for base runners. And then he would hit the ball. Nobody knew where he was going to hit it, but he'd holler out ahead of time. First and second, one out. And he'd hit it down the right field corner. And then as a player, you had to react accordingly, be the cutoff man, be in the right spot. And as soon as that one got finished, he'd have another ball, boom, man on third, one out, or he'd call out the situation. He just kept that going, kept that going for about an hour. And it really drilled his position players into, uh, you know, learning how to react, hit the cutoff man, which we don't see that done too often today, hit the proper cutoff man. You know, there's a secondary cutoff man as well. Yeah. And uh, those, those drills he called the rocket drill. Uh, and, and I think that's helped the Twins so much play the kind of uh, fundamental baseball that they did in the late 80s, early 90s. They, they handled the ball very well. And I know it's a, probably a phrase that goes across sports, but when you see teams handle the ball well, they don't give away outs and they right. certainly um, don't give away runs. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I like that, that, that drill as well. I, I wasn't sure what it was uh, in terms of the, the name as it translated to the execution, but uh, – yeah, get your brain thinking. It forces it forces players to communicate and deal with yeah. the cap. And you you had to get back in position right away. You know, it was a, it was almost like a cardio drill too. It's a, uh, you feel the ball in the right field corner if you're a right fielder, throw it in, and then your instinct is just relax and get back in position. But no, you had to run back, get in position. All of a sudden, here's the next drill: first and third, one out. Maybe you did a fly ball. Immediately, you got to think. Do I have a shot at home? I don't want that guy at first to go to second base. Got to make sure I hit the cutoff man. So it just, uh, like you said, it trained your brain so that your your instincts uh, took over while you're on the field as it should be. You do that for an hour. You do it for a long time. That's uh, well, that I'll tell you what. You don't walk out of that day. Uh, with any misunderstanding about what his emphasis is. Yeah, and while well, he would switch, you know, he'd switch outfielders too. He'd put three different outfielders out there, infielders, so they'd switch off, but they went at it a long time. I know that was a, a very famous drill uh, in spring training for the Twins was the rocket drill. Love it. And did they have pitchers out there too, to learning to back up? Oh, yeah. Pitcher would be there. They run, the other pitchers were base runners, which they don't have to do anymore because you don't have to run the bases, but it's – it's good practice anyway to learn how to uh, you run the bases. Well, it's good, good exercise. You look too. like a baseball player. 
<laughs> God forbid, God forbid. I, I, I see that as a, it must bother you as a, when, when you were commentating and then watching now with pitchers, I see more pitchers now when there's action happening, forgetting, not that just there, there could be an immediate fielder, but they've got to be a backup fielder where, you know, that runner on first and second, let's say, like you said, that ball's hit. Instead of your first three strides, as you said, right side, get the first base covering first with nobody on or with one guy on. It's got to be, boom, first three strides to that third base dugout and figure out where you're going to back up. I see guys hanging out in the middle of the diamond way too much. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things I trained myself to do, uh, which which you could identify this as an infielder, let's just say there's nobody on and the hitter gets a single to left field. So now the shortstop goes out, right? The second baseman goes to second base. But the first baseman kind of sneaks over toward the outfield grass in case the throw is overthrown. Correct, yep. Which means the the hitter runner can make a big turn at first because there's nobody on first base. And if there is a bobble, he can get to second. Well, I trained myself on those hits. I ran over and I was the backup man kind of in short right field so the first baseman could stay at the bag. And if that runner took too big of a turn... Every now and then, we might catch him in a rundown. I like that. So it's a case that I thank Eddie Lopat for that. He said, there's always a place for you to be other than standing on the mound picking your nose. Right. <laughs> so so you learn when that ball is hit, where could I go? Where could I go to help out? Well, your first base. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't blame the players today for that. I blame the system. I mean, we have... We being MLB, I don't know if I say we because I'm not part of that group, but MLB in general uh, has failed the pitchers in terms of how they, I mean, here they've got innings restrictions and pitch counts, and yet they don't put a lot of time in teaching their pitchers how to throw with a proper kinetic motion where they can possibly avoid injury and maybe be a little more durable and give them more innings. No, they just count pitches innings restrictions, throw 50, shut them down. They don't look into uh, the cause for the injuries. And same thing with feeling. They just, they don't put the, they don't put the time into it. Uh, there are other things that they want to concentrate on that usually revolve around power and uh, power and speed, which are two nice things to have. And if you have them both like Mike Trout and the other stuff, now you're the complete package. Yeah, has a lot to do with genetics too, having that power and speed. Now, you, the, the Major League Baseball locks in on pitch counts, innings restrictions as their means to keep injuries under control. We both know it's not working. Your your thought is, hey, if we just get back to technique. Yeah, I, I think if we, and I, I use myself as an example. I mean, I think I was fortunate to have the career I had with, I'm sure, less than perfect mechanics. But what probably helped is that uh, I didn't try to throw every pitch or any pitch as hard as I could. It was more about pitching than throwing. And so I'm sure even though uh, I, along with many others, did our motion was less than uh, 100% perfect from a kinetic standpoint, we didn't injure our arm to the point that the young pitchers are today uh, because we we didn't try to throw so hard. But today... It's so important to have proper technique. If you're going to try to throw that hard, boy, you better have proper technique. And you don't have to throw that long anymore. You only have to, you know, 
if you can give them four or five innings, you're going to make a lot of money. But they can they can count the pitches and they can restrict your innings. But if they don't teach you and train you to have proper technique, you're still going to break down. Yeah, it goes back I've to the that. look at the look at the Dodgers rotation. Oh, it's a mash unit. I mean, is there any pitcher there except? I think there's one or two in the minor leagues that are in camp that has not had one and many. Otani's had two surgeries. Uh, I see where, um, is it Yamamoto? Who, no, no, Singa for the Mets. He is now uh, shut down because he has arm fatigue. Now, how can you have arm fatigue the first week of spring training? Well, one of the reasons it might happen, and I, I think about this when I think back to uh, – some spring trainings I went to doing homework when I was an announcer, and that's when Terry Collins was managing the Mets and Matt Harvey was there. And uh, he was pitching in Jupiter that day, and uh, I said, how's Harvey doing? Oh, he said, he threw 100 the last time, and I questioned him, why in the world are you doing that? He said, well, I want to show everybody I'm okay. Well, then along came DeGrom, and he threw 100 in spring training, and then along came Syndergaard, and so all three of them now have been under the knife or injured. Uh, the other day with the Twins, this Duran yeah, was unbelievably power pitcher, but he's throwing 100 miles an hour in batting practice. Now, why would you do that? I mean, why wouldn't you just start at a very slow speed and and learn to throw the ball in the strike zone, and then as the weeks go by, you increase so that about by a week or so before opening day, you're ready to hit full power. But if you're hitting full power right now, you're only opening yourself up to possible fatigue and arm injury before the season ever starts. He's doing that in February. Yeah. Oh, that's insane. And what? And then again, it's I may be asking a silly question, but when they say arm fatigue, what in the heck are they talking about? I have arm fatigue every day. I think I've had it for. Well, you know, there there seemed to be, and nobody could put a finger on it. You come down to spring training, you haven't thrown much during the winter, and those first few times, oh boy, you feel pretty good. There's a little life on the ball. And then after a few outings, we called it the dead arm syndrome. All of a sudden, it's like your arm doesn't hurt, but there's just nothing on the ball. So you don't try to force it. You just kind of live with that. And then in another week or so, here it came back. Uh, That's one of the things about the body that people smarter than I am certainly may be able to understand. But it seemed like every pitcher went through it that it was kind of like that dead arm syndrome that you went through during a period of spring training that's is that a natural course of progression i think so because everybody seemed to have had it then and uh, we'd all be ready i mean my routine usually in spring training was uh you know for the first week you threw a little batting practice uh two three days in a row took a day off and maybe up to 20 minutes took a day off now the exhibition season starts three innings uh no signs don't care if they score 10 runs. See if you can throw it over. Get the feel of the ball, the feel of the mound. Uh, three days later, three more innings. Uh, then three days off, then five innings. And then seven innings. And then as you get closer to that opening day, eight or nine, now you're playing almost like you're, you're playing in game conditions, but not before that. That's all. That's why they call it spring training, not spring competing. Right. That's m- it's uh, it, it needs a paradigm shift. All of Major League Baseball does. Well, uh, 
how do we want to leave the audience today? What kind of message? I, I love the beginning messages you had, which your signs would be in the, the locker room, the instincts, curiosity. Boy, we're missing that. We're missing yeah, that. I, I, I think I'd go back to that with, you know, instincts, your best tool. Uh, you can get all this information you want, but boy, you just need to learn your instincts because once, once that first pitch is thrown, you really don't know what's going to happen. As a broadcaster, I know they'd say, Kenny, what are you looking for tonight? What I said, I'm looking for the first pitch of the game. Because in football, basketball, tennis, back hockey, back and forth, back and forth. In baseball, nobody knows where it's going. And you don't know if the starting pitcher is going to be out there for an inning or five innings. So uh, you just have to be ready to adjust to every possible situation that might happen out there. And the way to do that is to use your instincts. Yeah. You just you just described to our audience, I think, in, in that short time, the issue with baseball and that baseball is a mystery. It, it, every little situation has to be put into a context. There's no cookie cutter. They're trying to treat it like a puzzle where right. same number of pieces every night and it's not. Um, but that was another another great show, Jim. I appreciate what you do every week. And um, I'm curious to see, are you going to video yourself thrown with the kinetic arm on? I might do that. I might, uh, I'm going to take it with me there to camp. I might have, uh, somebody take a few, a few shots of it. That'd yeah. Be they, if they bring that spin rate thing around you, make sure you, you push it away. <laughs> we don't need any of that in our world. But, um, no, another great episode today. Third, it's a, it's the back end of a triple header morning. Um, and then we've got three more this afternoon, so we're calling it Wild Turkey Thursday. Do you know what Wild Turkey is? Not not the not the uh, the alcohol Wild Turkey, but right. you know what Wild Turkey is in the sports world. I hear you. It's a it's when a bowler bowls six strikes in a row. So we called oh, it yeah. Wild, yeah. Wild Turkey Thursday today. But uh, you know, hope everybody enjoyed the episode four sixty five of Cot's Corner with the Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Make sure you follow our sponsors, Millions Jaw Bats. The kinetic arm, as we talked quite a bit about this week, one-on-one for scholarship situations. Uh, we talked about uh, Monet hair products potentially next week. But, boy, if you're interested in advertising, interested in hiring one of our hosts to come out and do a talk or a clinic, or if you just want to ask them a question, you can go right on to Millions and either hit the Book Me or Shop button, and you can do that. Plus, don't forget getting some gear as well. And with that, we're in the books here, halfway through the podcast day now, 465. No better way to do it than with the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Jim, thanks so much again today. All right. Thank you, Dave. Always enjoy it. My friend.